Hello and welcome back to a podcast about murder. I'm Freya and I'm here with Jem as usual. Are you ready to talk about murder today, Jem? I'm ready. <laughs> it's been a bit complicated to record today. So. Yes. <laughs> the joys of parenthood. <laughs> Today's going to be a big one. We're doing a serial killer that I'm sure tons of people have heard of. I don't think we've done any American serial killers yet. No, we've only done one American case that I remember. Mm, I think we might have done, we have to have done oh, no. at least a couple. We just American did Brittany cases. Murphy, that's true. Yeah, and we did John Bonet. And I don't know who you were thinking of. <laughs> I was thinking of John Bonet. Oh, well, pretty ama- amazing to have got this far without having done really any American stuff, but particularly American serial killers because it's so, you know. They're so well known. There's no shortage of them for sure. No Mm. offence to any American listeners. But (laughs) for a few decades there, you guys were really churning them out. Like, (laughs) it was pretty crazy. And they are some nasty fuckers. So let's talk about a really nasty fucker. We're going to talk about David Berkowitz today, also known as the Son of Sam, also known as the 44 Caliber Killer. I think it's safe to say David Berkowitz is definitely up there with the great, and great is the wrong word, of course, but the great American serial killers of the 70s and 80s, mm. which, as I said, was really the sort of heyday of American serial killing, it seems. All your big names, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Dennis Rader, Gary Ridgway, Ed Kemper, Richard Ramirez, so many more. They all come from this period, the 1970s to the 1990s. I don't know what was up with America then, (laughs) but more than 80% of known American serial killers operated between 1970 and 1999. I thought I was prepared for you to say, but more than 80% of Americans were serial killers at this time. (laughs) And I was like, I'm sure that's not accurate. That can't be true. (laughs) I'd believe it. Crime historians even refer to this period as the golden age of serial murder because of how prolific. Yeah. There are many interesting theories that have been put forward for why this is, and they include the fact that all these men were born during wartime with fathers Mm. who had gone to war suffering from PTSD, the prevalence of domestic abuse and physical punishment of children, and so on. And we'll find that certainly David Berkowitz had a past that might offer some insight into his behaviour, maybe. But another factor that may have increased the numbers of serial killing victims at the time might have been the normalcy of behaviours that are now thought to be risky. Um, By that I mean things like hitchhiking and how sex workers would readily approach and enter strangers' cars, whereas these days um, people are a bit more aware of danger like that. I guess also technology has changed a lot. Like, it's a lot easier to be connected. To be like, phone me, text me when you're home, that kind of thing. Interestingly, and I know we aren't getting into the actual case yet, but I just find this context and history quite fascinating. A lot of people question whether there really was an increase from the pre-70s period or whether things have always been more or less the same. And it's just public awareness and linguistics that has changed around serial murder. Mm. For example, in the 15th century, as uh, to as late as the 18th century in Europe, people were often put on trial and executed for being werewolves. Mm. Um but of course, I mean, I feel 60 to 80% confident that werewolves don't exist. So it's still a, quite a big margin. <laughs> so it's thought that this was an early term, an explanation for ordinary people who compulsively killed others, i.e. Mm. serial killers. During periods of history where serial killing wasn't reported, it's probably likely that there were killers active. But during these times, there were no formal police either. Mm. and justice was a sort of unrecorded it was controlled entirely by local communities forming lynch mobs so once formal policing is established in the 1800s you start hearing about jack the ripper and so on because there's someone recording the fact that they're out looking for this guy Mm. but for sociological reasons and since policing still isn't that great plus the technology isn't there there were probably plenty of killers slipping under the radar Then in the 1960s and 70s, you have a new kind of crime hunting emerging, the rise of psychological profiling and the coining of the term serial killer, a greater sophistication in investigation tactics. So perhaps after that focus begins, serial killing appears more common than it was, even if there's no change 
actually in numbers. Mm. So maybe the so-called golden age of serial murder was real and maybe it wasn't, it was just how it seemed. But it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and it's interesting, like I was thinking about Fritz Harman, who was the a German serial killer. Mm. And even back then, which is at the beginning of the 20th century, more mm. or less. And he's still referred to as the vampire of Hanover or the wolfman. Mm. So clearly these sort of Because it's difficult to rationalise. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. So now let's get on to the actual books <laughs> of today's episode, David Berkowitz. And as we often do, we're going to start with the circumstances of his birth and his childhood. Elizabeth Broder, known as Betty, was a Jewish woman who came from a poor family. Living in Brooklyn, New York, she worked as a waitress. In 1950, ten years after her marriage to an Italian-American named Tony Falco had broken down, Betty started dating a married man, Joseph Kleinman. The affair went on for three years. She gave birth to a son that she named Richard David on the 1st of June, 1953. She gave her son the last name of her ex-husband, Falco, probably because the child's real father didn't want his name used, because he's obviously married... Okay. With Joseph Kleinman refusing to acknowledge and support his son, Betty decided to give the baby up for adoption. Richard David Falco found a family with the Berkowitzes, a middle-aged Jewish couple who made a humble living running their small hardware shop in the Bronx. Nathan and Pearl had no other children. They gave their newly adopted son their surname, Berkowitz, and reversed the order of his birth names from Richard David to David Richard. And that is how he becomes David Berkowitz. Unfortunately, David Berkowitz's childhood after his adoption wasn't without tribulation. His family and others who knew him found him to be domineering and rude. At school, he didn't excel despite above-average intellect, choosing to engage in stealing and minor arson instead of applying himself to his education. If you'll recall, starting fires is one of the three factors in the McDonald triad, a behaviour which, if present in childhood, can indicate future serial violence. David's behaviour was concerning enough that his parents sought the help of a therapist at some point, but he was never in trouble with the law. His low-grade crime didn't even get a mention in his school record, believe it or not. I I wonder if maybe they were like, oh, he's adopted, he's having a tough time, let's give him a pass kind of thing. I mean... That sounds sounds too nice for the time, though, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess, but I think there's also an attitude, like, is this, this seems to be, like, during the golden age of, like, well, boys will be boys, kind of thing, so. Mm, yeah, I guess that's, that's a good point. When David was 14 years old, his mother Pearl lost her life to breast cancer. This marked a new chapter of upset for David, as he was deeply mm. attached to her. He struggled with the loss, and when his father remarried, David didn't get along with his new stepmother at all. Despite this, he continued living with them until he finished high school, after which he joined the US Army. He served from the tender age of just 17 to 21, stationed in Fort Knox in Kentucky and later sent abroad to South Korea. While in the army, David became competent with weapons and established himself as a skilled marksman. Three years later, he was honorably discharged from the army and decided to seek out his birth mother, eager to discover more about his origins. Unfortunately, David didn't like what he found out. When he tracked Betty down and heard from her what had happened, it hit him hard. Feelings of abandonment stemming from finding out about his adoption were further triggered by the story of his birth father's total rejection. Like many adopted children, David struggled with his sense of personal identity. Although he struck up something of a relationship with Rosalind, his half-sister through Betty, his communication with either wouldn't last for long. From 1976... David entered the workforce following a brief stint at a local community college. His string of jobs included roles as a letter sorter for the United States Postal Service and as a taxi driver. He settled in Yonkers, a city in New York State, which, I mean, that name, I love it. (laughs) I love it. Never heard of it until I researched this, I think. Yonkers. Yonkers. (laughs) Have you ever heard of Yonkers? No, of course I've never heard of Yonkers. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) Totally wicked name. But anyway, he lived in Yonkers and led a generally solitary life. He was described as a loner by those who lived locally or worked with him. It was in late 1975 that David would embark on his murderous career, but only in the summer of 1976 would the son of Sam Killings begin in earnest. In December 1975, David Berkowitz is thought to have attempted his first murders. It was Christmas Eve when he attacked a woman and a teenage girl in the Bronx, New York City, both of whom luckily survived. 
The teenage girl, who was just 15, fought for her life in hospital for a week, eventually recovering from her six stab wounds inflicted with a hunting oh knife. God. And she sounds like an absolute boss. I'm not trying to make a joke out of what happened to her. I literally just mean teenage girls are hard as fucking nails, <laughs> man. Like, they are not given the credit for it. She survives six stab wounds. She's 15. She's just like, yeah, give me a week. <laughs> He must have thought she would be an easy target as well. So mm. they always do, but never, never underestimate a teenage girl, <laughs> man. These knife attacks occurred while David was still living locally in the Bronx. As they were committed at random, he was never identified as a suspect. And when he moved soon after to Yonkers, he left the crimes essentially unsolvable until his eventual capture. Sorry, spoiler alert, he gets caught. <laughs> In case you didn't know. David, according to his own story, didn't attempt to kill again until July 1976. By that time, he'd decided to trade the messy, intimate and unpredictable nature of stabbing for the cold precision of a gun, calling back to his marksman training. On July 29th, Jodie Valenti, a 19-year-old nursing student, and her friend Donna Loria, an emergency medical technician, aged 18, had enjoyed a night out together in the city of New Rochelle, New York. They were parked in Jodie's car near Donna's home in the Pelham Bay area of the Bronx, chatting about the events of the night. As Donna got out of the car to head towards her home at about 10 past 1 in the morning, she noticed a man was approaching them, walking towards the door at speed. The stranger was carrying a paper bag and withdrew a pistol, crouched down to aim and fired, all before Donna had time to react. The first shot killed Donna instantly. The second shot hit Jodie in her thigh and a third bullet missed the victims completely. After this, the killer stood and fled the scene, leaving Jodie badly injured but alive. Jesus. Jodie was able to describe the shooter to the police as being a white male with fair skin, hair that was short, dark and curly, about 5 foot 8 inches tall and 91 kilograms or 200 pounds, and that he was probably in his 30s. She got a good look at him. Like, I wouldn't, I'd be so panicked that like... Yeah, definitely, me too. But I, and I was just about to say, I'm always amazed by people who can guess things like height and weight, because I would have no fucking idea... Like, to be honest, even age. Like, unless it's something like... Oh, yeah, to age as well. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have no idea. I would literally have no idea how to even I start guessing I... someone's weight. No. And not very good at guessing height either. Height, I could maybe figure out. But weight, I would find really tricky to, like... I could probably say if someone was, like, six foot. Mm. Like, over six foot. But the rest is just... Yeah. Anyway, Jodie also confirmed she didn't know or recognise the shooter. Witnesses who lived in the area gave descriptions of an unfamiliar car they had seen lingering in the area in the run-up to the attack on Donna and Jody. A yellow car, described as a compact car in US terms, which is apparently mm. a small family car in British terms. <laughs> I imagined like a Honda Civic, which is like the car that my dad used to have, and I checked, and apparently yes, okay. that is a compact car. <laughs> So if you are like me and you don't know anything about cars, just picture like the most normal car. As opposed to something that's big and... Yes, I think. Right. I guess these local witnesses remembered it because it was yellow. Yeah. And its yellowness is, I am imagine, to be unusual. It sounds unusual. unusual. Like now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think I've ever seen a yellow car. Rarely. I think I've seen like two. Anyway. I feel like we've discussed this car for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, I think this is enough now. <laughs> Donna's father was able to link together the information with, this, with his statement that he'd seen a yellow compact car parked near to his home and inside of it, a man with an appearance that seemed to match up with Jody's description of the mm. killer. So they're sort of bringing this together. The shooter laid low for the following month, striking again in Queens, New York, which would end up being the area most associated with Son of Sam activity. David was clearly sensible enough to carry out his crimes a good distance from his actual neighborhood. Yonkers, where he lived, is about 40 minutes drive north of the Queens area of New York City. Okay. So, you know, good distance. On the 23rd of October 1976, security guard Carl Denaro, aged 20, and his companion Rosemary Keenan, an 18-year-old student, 
were sitting in Rosemary's car together. Similarly to Donna and Jodie, they were parked in a quiet residential area when the attacker began shooting at them, although they didn't realise this at first. The bullets shattered the windows of the car, injuring Rosemary with broken glass. As she started the car and sped away to safety, neither of them were exactly sure what happened. She escaped without any gunshot wounds, but Carl was not so lucky. He'd been shot in the head, but he managed to survive, later having the damaged part of his skull removed and replaced with metal plating, which is pretty badass. (laughs) These people are like, yeah, amazing. Carl later said that he had no idea they were being shot at, and at first he thought there had been some kind of explosion from within the car that had broken the Mm. windows. Neither he nor Rosemary was able to give a description of the shooter as they hadn't actually seen him. He had been able to avoid being seen by his victims this time. However, the lack of proximity meant that he had not managed to kill Mm. either of them. Despite not being witnessed, he'd left another important piece of evidence behind for investigators to work with. His 44 caliber bullets lodged in the body of Rosemary's car. Police knew that even if they did find a suspect and the potential murder weapon, the bullets were too damaged to be matched up with a particular gun, but the caliber would help them link the shootings together. It was believed that Carl Denaro, who had shoulder-length hair, may have been mistaken for a woman by the shooter, who was potentially acting on misogynistic rage or perhaps a fixation or hatred for couples of women who he perceived Mm. to be lesbians. But these were guesses at the motivations for the attack and police found the case, as with the previous one, essentially unsolvable for that. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like, it's so random and there's not much to go on that you can't really build a case or profile. Mm. But the shooter didn't wait long before his next move. It was just a month later, on November 27th, that he struck again, this time once again approaching victims directly. Donna DeMassi, 16, and Joanne Lamino, 18, both high school students, were sitting on the porch of Joanne's home in the Floral Park neighbourhood of Queens. They had just returned from seeing a movie, and it was just after midnight when they were approached by a man. He started to ask them for directions as a distraction before quickly pulling out a gun. He initially shot Donna and Joanne once each, which incapacitated them, following up with several more shots. He fled the scene as someone came out of the neighbouring apartment building to see what was going on after hearing the shots. Again, incredibly, both victims would survive, although Joanne's injuries would leave her paraplegic for the rest of her life. The descriptions given in this case were quite different. This is where some doubt comes in for many people about whether David Berkowitz was guilty of all Mm. the crimes that he's been charged with, whether he was in cahoots with someone else or if there were unrelated cases that were ascribed to him and that he just claimed them for clout. The witness who saw the attacker in this case fleeing described a blonde man, though Mm. David had unmistakably dark hair. Donna and Joanne described a man who was in his early 20s. Of course, that would be David's age at the time, but it doesn't match up with Donna Laria and Jody Valenti's claim that their attacker was in his 30s. Yeah. I think that's an easy thing to mistake, though. Like we, we, we were saying earlier, I, I find it difficult to assess people's ages. Like, if it had been 20s and 60s, I'd be like, okay, it's unlikely that this is the same person. Even if it had been 20s and 40s, I would have been like, yeah, and it's mm. it's dark, you're in an extremely stressful situation like yeah it's definitely not a science to guess someone's age on a brief sighting in a high stress situation so not sure about that but Mm. the descriptions are very different the man was described as wearing military fatigues which does offer a link with david berkowitz's military experience however i do find it hard to accept that someone who was trained in the u.s army with guns and known to be good with them would find it this difficult to kill people at point blank range yeah even if you're in a rush he's only killed one person at this point and many of the bullets have missed which is understandable with the distance of the attack on Carl and Rosemary, but not so much with the others. And Mm. if we're talking about, that's if we're talking about one shooter, but I've never fired a gun, (laughs) nor have I ever undertaken any military training, so I'm not speaking with any kind of knowledge on this subject. It's just something that does make me think it's a bit strange. It does seem strange, and especially like this is over several attacks. I could understand there's maybe some kind of hesitation the first time, But the fact that this seems to be a repeated issue is a bit strange. Again, whether it was due to being sighted or just opportunity, the shooter waited a few months before attempting another attack. 
This time, it was another couple with one male and one female, and the police were for the first time open with the fact that they believed the four shootings to be linked. However, due to the dramatic difference in the descriptions of the dark-haired killer in the first shooting and the blonde military figure in the more recent attack, NYPD Sergeant Richard Conlon's statement was that they were searching for more than one suspect. Definitely something to bear in mind for later, as I mentioned before when we come to consider the eventual conclusion that David Berkowitz was a lone wolf. This fourth shooting occurred in Queens near the Forest Hill station of the Long Island Railroad. On January 30th, 1977, bartender John Deal was sitting in his parked car with his fiancée, Christine Freund, a secretary. They were 30 and 26 years old, respectively. It was around 12.40am, and the couple were about to embark on part two of their night out. Having just watched Rocky at the cinema, they were getting ready to head to the dance hall and party. Suddenly, the couple were shot at, and three of the bullets were able to penetrate the car and hit both victims. John was hit once and luckily escaped with only minor injuries, able to drive the car away to safety. But tragically, Christine sustained two gunshots and later died in hospital. Like the second attack on Carl Donaro and Rosemary Keenan, the killer had managed to remain out of sight of the surviving victim. However, using the descriptions from the other survivors and witnesses, police were able to release two composite sketches, one showing an approximate likeness of the dark-haired suspect and the other of the blonde-haired suspect. They made public their suspicions that the killer or killers were targeting young women with long brunette hair. They also noted that every bullet found so far in each case was a 44 caliber, a large size typically associated with revolvers and some rifles. This detail would earn David one of his nicknames, the 44 caliber killer. So there's a composite sketch of a brunette and one of a blonde. Is it just the hair color that's different? Is there another significant physical difference? The faces are quite are quite different. These are clearly, for me anyway, these are clearly two different people, completely different people okay. that have been seen. They're not like, whether, whether either of them is the killer or mm. not, is a killer or not, they're clearly two completely different people that have been cited, okay. for me anyway. The killer was not put off by the progress of the police in the cases, striking again that March. On the 8th at about 7.30pm, a stone's throw from the January shooting, Student Virginia Voskirchian was accosted by a stranger armed with a gun on her way back from classes. The killer shot Virginia at point-blank range in the head, shooting through the textbooks she'd instinctively raised to protect herself. She died instantly. This was the only known incident where a lone victim was attacked. The media circus had well and truly begun by this time, with multiple papers running extensive pieces on the killings, including graphic details, speculation and opinion writing on every aspect of the cases. Coverage wasn't just restricted to the US. Media in other countries had also picked up on the sensational story of a mad gunman loose in New York City, with newspapers reporting on the crimes in Europe and Russia. The NYPD held a press conference two days after Virginia's murder. The mayor of New York City, Abraham Beam, stated that the shooting was connected with the previous incidents, citing ballistic evidence. The bullet that killed Virginia was also a 44 caliber from a bulldog revolver, and although police couldn't forensically prove it, they were also convinced that the same bulldog revolver had been used to kill first victim Donna Luria based on their examination of the bullets. The following month saw no let-up in the shootings. On April 17th, yet another couple were attacked. At about 3am in the Bronx, 20-year-old Alexander Esau was sitting in a car, his brothers, parked on the Hutchinson River Parkway service road, known locally as the Hutch. The location was just a few blocks from the first shooting in which Donna Luria was killed. Alexander, a tow truck driver, was accompanied by student Valentina Suriani, his girlfriend. She was 18 and had dreams of becoming a model and actress. The car was parked just one block from Valentina's home. Now, I'm hoping that the distances referred to in blocks is meaningful to someone. <laughs> At least Americans, because for me, it's very difficult for me to get a feeling for how far a block I don't is. No, because at least in my experience, this isn't a common way to talk about distance in the UK, even in cities where a block is a relatable concept. But I guess in America, everything's a lot more like uniform and planned out, whereas in like European, older European cities, it's kind of like sprawling. Yes. And and every building is completely different. Like I feel like in America, they made blocks that are the same. Mm. a lot of them well, even if you look at like the states you can tell that someone like someone planned that shit someone whereas... planned, like it's very obviously like done with a ruler 
Do you know what I mean? It's almost creepy how perfect the American cities are. (laughs) But in American cities, blocks is like a normal term for distance. So in most of the sources, that's how it's described. So, of course, I looked it up to try and get some kind of other way to translate it. And all I got was around 300 feet, which I sort of realized was just as meaningless to me. (laughs) What's that in meters? So I actually ended up Googling how long does it take to walk 300 feet and I got just under four minutes. So a block away is less than five minutes. And okay. three blocks is going to be less than a 15 minute walk. That helped me extrapolate from that. And I got a feeling for how close the crimes were to each other. Okay. So pretty close. It was another bold crime in a residential area with many potential witnesses. Alexander and Valentina were shot at four times. In this attack, both victims would lose their lives after sustaining shots to the head. Valentina died on the scene, while Alexander would make it to hospital, but later died without regaining consciousness to give any witness statement. Police again retrieved 44 caliber bullets and believed the same weapon had been used again, as had been used in all the shootings so far. But by far the most interesting evidence gathered from the scene of this shooting was a letter. The letter, handwritten in mostly capital letters and riddled with misspellings, was found near the bodies of Alexander and Valentina, and it was addressed to the captain of the NYPD, Joseph Borelli. The letter in full with its incorrect grammar reads as follows. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered. Their blood drained. Just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more. No, sir, no more, but I must honour thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I will want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as... Bang, 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 ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. There's a lot going on in this. (laughs) Not much of it makes sense. No. If any of it. Like, nothing about it. It contradicts itself. Yeah. There's very little you can sort of, like, grab onto. But the, obviously, the police had to try and understand this as much as they could. And some of the theories investigators and psychological profilers drew from the letter were as follows. One, that the killer believed he was experiencing demonic possession due to schizophrenia. Two, opposing this, that the killer's dramatic and clearly unhinged writing was intended to manipulate the media, public and police, giving the killer the gratifying sense of power and control that serial killers tend to crave. Sending a letter at all certainly indicates a desire for this kind of attention. Mm. and three that the killer was seeking revenge on a specific medic or nurse for the death of his father papa sam from repeated heart attacks this theory was based on the mention of the heart attacks in the notes the fact that the first victim donna laria was a medical technician and her companion jody was a nursing student and the idea that the seeking out of women with dark hair related to a specific person from the killer's past i kind of get it but i find the third one slightly weaker than the other two theories in my opinion. mainly because like it he doesn't go on to target any medical professionals only those two no and he doesn't any... explicitly mention anything about 
yeah a revenge aspect yeah i definitely think it was a weaker theory it's yeah it's just about it's all about the kind of uh whether you believe the first instance that this is someone who's experiencing delusions and or whether you believe that this is someone who wants you to think they're experiencing delusions i guess at this point it's hard to say but i do Mm. find it all a bit just because it seems so staged as well yes and yeah it all seems a bit too constructed for it to be just the sort of ramblings of someone who is not I agree. It reads like someone trying to trying to be nutty. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah. The phonetically written quote from the so-called Papa Sam that is me hoot it hurt, sunny boy was thought to be an attempt to communicate a Scottish accent though ultimately this ended up not being considered significant. Jimmy Breslin was an American journalist and writer who was known for his weekly contributions to the New York Daily News. On May 30th, Jimmy received a letter with a postmark showing it had been sent early the same day from New Jersey, which is incredible service, I should just say. (laughs) The letter read, Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Laria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night. Thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam, if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell and will see you at the next job. Or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember, Miss Loria, thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. And then these names are the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coughing, coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. Beneath the sign-off Son of Sam was a drawing combining four symbols into a kind of logo. On the back of the letter's envelope, the sender had neatly written, Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity, 44. The entire letter was much more neatly written and carefully presented when compared with the previous note. And I think it's pretty obvious that it's quite a different style. Mm. It's much more like cohesive and it's almost poetic, I think, especially at the beginning with the it, hello from the streets. And It is, you know, but at the very... same time, it's also very like parts of it are still quite disconnected. I feel like he's, oh, he yeah. jumps from one thing to another and then goes back and re- you, like... Yes. I just love that he's like, I don't want... I'm not in it for the publicity, but let me just go on talking but here for a I little am bit. doing this, yeah. <laughs> much was made of the style of writing and presentation of this letter, so much that it was surmised that the writer might be a graphic designer or a printer. One line of inquiry even followed up on the theory that the killer was a comic letterer, with staff from DC Comics asked to look at portions of the letter in case they could identify the writer. Nothing came of these theories, though. Finally, police agreed with the New York Daily News that parts of the letter could be published as part of a sensational article in which Jimmy Breslin called on the son of Sam to give himself up. 
The edition sold more than 1.1 million copies, the most of any that the newspaper had ever published, and it generated an enormous but ultimately unhelpful deluge of tips from the public. I was going to say, I don't. it seems risky to play the game he wants them to play, in a way. And to give him the attention. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, <laughs> clearly, yeah. this is what he wants. Is to drum up attention and for the for everyone mm. to be making a fuss and to be looking into it and discussing. It's it's always a hard one when um, with the the debate on whether you should publicize mm. things like this. The mention of the date July 29th in the letter was a reference to the very first shooting, the killing of Don Laria and wounding of Jody Valenti. Investigators wondered if this meant the killer would attempt another shooting on the anniversary of the first murder. But the shooter struck sooner than that, attempting another execution of two victims on June 26th, 1977. Sal Lupo, aged 20, who worked for a mechanic, and Judy Placido, aged 17, who had just finished high school, were sitting in Sal's parked car at 3am in Bayside, Queens. The two had just ended their night out at a discotheque and were chatting about the son of Sam shootings when they were attacked. One bullet hit Sal in the arm, while others hit Judy in the shoulder, back of her neck and her temple. Luckily, both survived, although they did not see the shooter. However, a few witnesses were able to give descriptions of a tall man with dark hair that they believed they had seen running away from the area. As the Son of Sam case gained more media and public attention, fear was at an all-time high. So far, all the victims had long, dark hair, and this led to the women of New York flocking in their thousands to shops and hairdressers to buy wigs and get new cuts and colours. When you think about gun-related violence, not sure how to say this, but it can feel a little bit less frightening in some ways because you're thinking about the kind of intimate, terror and pain of something like stabbing that's something that you that you feel more like oh that's really frightening and sometimes you don't realize just how horrible and painful it would be to be shot multiple times and live and there's something very removed it's very about frightening it. yeah it's very frightening to imagine um being a victim of this guy basically and Sometimes sort of, I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like sometimes shooting is sort of just kind of glossed over a bit more. No, but it's something that like, if I think about, you know, TV or films or something, it's like a stabbing i feel like is more often portrayed as like fatal or more serious whereas Mm. a shooting unless it kills you outright is sort of something you can get over in a fictional world and so it's kind of trivialized in a way yes you saying that makes me realize what i mean is like when you see it on tv so much Mm. i feel uh people being shot i mean or in movies it's not seen as so much of a, I don't know, it's, it's trivialized a little bit. But it, like, so talking about this case really reminds me how absolutely brutal. Oh, yeah, like, definitely. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm trying to say is, like, I think we, we get, we have this normalization of, I think, gun-related violence mm. in a way that makes it, but, but when you talk about something like this, it really brings home just how, like, how terrifying it actually is how horrendous it would be for your like the injuries you can receive and yeah horrible no and the fact that any random person could get access to this incredibly powerful weapon and do such serious damage from such a distance as well like yes the fact that most of these people don't see him coming they don't you know there's nothing to prepare them for this As July came and drew to a close, investigators knew that the anniversary of the first shooting was approaching and still felt that the date mentioned in the Jimmy Breslin letter had offered a clue that another attack would occur during the same period. Police set up a variety of measures to increase their presence over a wide area, covering key areas in both Queens and the Bronx, hoping to catch the shooter in the act. Instead, the son of Sam struck in Brooklyn on July 31 in what would be his final attack. 
Robert Violante, a salesman aged 20, and his date, Stacy Moskowitz, a secretary also aged 20, were in Robert's car kissing at the end of a successful first date together. They were parked in the Bath Beach area of Brooklyn. Suddenly, a stranger appeared beside the car. Standing less than three feet from the passenger side door, the man began firing. Robert and Stacy both received gunshot wounds to the head. Sadly, Stacy died of her injuries, while Robert survived but lost his left eye. God. Again, there were witnesses, resulting in a new police sketch and a description of a yellow car speeding away from the scene. How many yellow cars are around? Like, I honestly feel like it should be easier to find him just based on the car alone. (laughs) Just start going through the yellow cars, like, you know, you'll find him. The Son of Sam shootings ended here, leaving six people dead, nine people wounded, some of those with lifelong injuries, the city of New York in a state of panic, and the NYPD, including the specially established Son of Sam Task Force, named the Omega Task Force, working around the clock on one of the biggest and most high-pressure manhunts they'd ever embarked on. Despite leaving so many survivors and witnesses, David Berkowitz had until now remained completely unconnected to the case. But this run of incredible dumb luck was about to run out, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't resist. Cassilia Davis was a resident of the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bath Beach where the last shooting, that of Robert and Stacy, took place. Just before the crime occurred, Cassilia was walking her dog around the area and noticed a police officer placing a ticket on a yellow car parked near a fire hydrant. After he moved on, a man came from the direction of the car and walked by Cassilia. She felt the man was looking at her with interest and felt frightened when she saw he was holding what she described as a dark object, although she wasn't sure what it was. She ran home and heard gunshots, later realising those were the gunshots that killed Stacy Moskowitz and maimed Robert Violante. It took Cecilia a few days to come forward and tell police what she'd seen, but it proved to be the big break investigators needed. They looked into every car that had received a ticket in the area of the night of the shooting. Mm. The lead turned up David Berkowitz's yellow 1970 Ford Galaxy. When the task force contacted police in Yonkers, where David lived, they found that police there had their own suspicions about David. On August 10th, 1977, detectives went to David's apartment building on Pine Street, Yonkers. Outside, they found his 1970 Ford Galaxy and, looking into the back seat, saw a gun. Possession of the gun was technically legal and didn't give police proper justification to search the car. But they did so anyway. (laughs) Which, you know, I mean, well, I don't support that decision, but I guess (laughs) it worked out. So (laughs) inside, they found probably the most incriminating set of evidence they possibly could have found. Um, It was a duffel bag full of ammo, a bunch of maps of the locations of Son of Sam shootings and a threatening letter addressed to the head of the Son of Sam task force, Timothy Dowd. I was literally going to joke and say it's like drafts of his letters, but he li- really, like, literally, <laughs> literally. <does. laughs> The detectives waited for David to leave his apartment rather than try to enter it or risk a potentially violent situation within the confined quarters of the apartment building. Worried that their improper search would mean the loss of any evidence gathered from the car, they also didn't want to lose anything they could gather from the apartment by entering without a search warrant. So they were just trying to sort of... I mean, <laughs> they were damage control at this moment. Right. They'd gotten too excited <laughs> and gone in the car. Just one already. of them was like, "Guys, I don't know. Maybe we should follow procedure on this one." I mean, I totally get it. You've been looking for this guy for yeah. so long. Like, you must be so like, how do you not jump the gun and just get in that car and find out what's in there? I mean, I would be gagging to find mm. to get in that car. But you got to follow the rules, man. It's not cool. <laughs> Yeah, they basically just didn't want to lose any potential evidence from the apartment by, like, jumping the gun on that yeah. as well. <laughs> Finally, at around 10pm, David came out of the building, got into his car, and was approached and surrounded by the detectives. Next to him in a paper bag was the 44 caliber Bulldog revolver that had been identified as the type of gun used in the crimes. Well, you got me, David Berkowitz is said to have stated to the detectives, speaking without emotion, but then breaking into a smile. Depending on who you ask, he may have added... How come it took you such a long time? Hmm. Now that I've got you, Detective John Falatico replied, who have I got? You know, said David. No, I don't, answered John. You tell me. David turned to look at him and said, I'm Sam. You're Sam, said John. Sam who? Sam, David Berkowitz, David replied. After David's 
arrest, when the search warrant finally came through for his apartment, police got the treasure trove they were hoping for. The place was a mess, with just a few pieces of furniture, and boxes, clothes, books, records and other objects scattered around. David appeared to sleep on a mattress on the floor. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleeping on a mattress on the floor. You know, like the Japanese do, don't they? No, and I think it's Or is that a myth? I don't know enough about it, but they... Okay, well, you're going to make me Google the Japanese people sleep on the floor. <laughs> Am I making you Google this? In Japan, the majority of people sleep on the floor. Hmm. Today, many Japanese people sleep on a tatami mat made of rice straw. Hmm. So, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. No, and I think, you know... But in the context of his flat, it I guess it would seem strange from a, you know, from a Western perspective. I think especially in America in the 80s, they're probably like... This is the most deranged thing I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Given the what the rest of his flat looks like. Yeah. It's just in a sort of state of disarray. Disarray. Yeah. Someone who doesn't really care about their living conditions. And also bizarre writings were found on some of the walls. Yeah. So that's gonna That's add rarely to that. a good sign. <laughs> I feel like David's diaries, which he had kept since the age of 21, were full of detailed notes about arsons committed across New York City that David claimed responsibility for. And that is when I said that Yonkers police were suspicious of David. Ah, okay. The arson stuff is, I believe, what they're referring to. That it was other crimes, not murders, but things like arsons that they suspected him of doing, but had no... But there was nothing to put together, if you see what I mean. How is this guy so slick? He doesn't seem like a guy who's like meticulous in his planning so far from what I know about him. So it seems just just super lucky, I feel. Yeah. Super lucky. David was interrogated at the 60th precinct in Coney Island, used as the hub for the Omega task force. The questioning took just half an hour as David admitted being the son of Sam Shooter easily. He quickly embarked on the story that would provide the media with their next angle of fascination. His claim that his neighbor's dog spoke to him and made satanic demands that he spill the blood of young women. It was possessed, David claimed, by a powerful demon and its dark commands to kill were impossible to resist. The black Labrador was owned by neighbor Sam Carr, who David identified as the Sam he had referred to in his first letter. That is Papa Sam. Right. It's Sam Carr. And we'll we'll come back to him a little later. After the confession, David Berkowitz would begin a frustrating dance of back and forth with his stories, perhaps enjoying the media attention and perhaps enjoying toying with the detectives. He variously retracted his claims of the possessed dog and satanic themes, saying he made them up, only to later restate them. He seemed to be acting mentally ill to pursue an insanity defence, but then insisted on pleading guilty. He wrote letters to the media, including the ominous quote, there are other sons out there, God help the world, which some felt meant David didn't work alone. Others thought it simply meant there were others unconnected to David who would feel motivated to commit similar similar crimes. Mm. You know, and another thing is you could just, this could just be another thing to say that makes people frightened, that gets in the papers. Yeah. Either way, the vagaries were the point. David clearly got something out of all of this, all of the media activity, every change of his story, every psychiatric evaluation, every interrogation, every scrap of attention he got. He eventually admitted that he made up the story about the possessed dog. And that was the end of that. So it's funny that that's what it ends on, that it's not like that's the final word about this whole dog story, that it's not something that's left ambiguous or like that he keeps coming back to and we still don't know what. He did go back and forth on it for a while and then eventually said, no, I made it up and then never really went back to it. Mm. So that is, yeah, the last word on that. Court proceedings began with David Berkowitz entering his plea on May 8th, 1978. He pleaded guilty to all charges relating to each of the eight shootings, including the murders of the six people who had died. David made quite a spectacle of himself at some of his hearings, of course including an attempt to jump out of the courtroom window, which was on the seventh floor, a la Ted Bundy. He repeatedly shouted that his final victim, Stacey Motzkowitz, was a whore, and then yelled, I'd kill her again, I'd kill them all again. Many wondered if this was expressive of David's true state of mind or more attention-seeking and manipulation. At the psych evaluation that was mandated before the trial continued, David drew himself in a prison cell and wrote, I am not well, not well at all. But psychiatrists apparently found this unconvincing and the sentencing went ahead. Hmm. 
and I find it unconvincing as well. I do think he's absolutely full of shit, personally. <laughs> but I don't know what you think. <laughs> it all just seems very like he knows how to play his audience or he's trying totally. to like create all this, this image. Yelling, yelling in court, I'd kill her again, I'd kill them all again. That's just bollocks. That's total bollocks. Mm. That's acting. On June 12th, 1978, David Berkowitz was sentenced to serve six life sentences for each of the murdered victims. Other convictions were second-degree murder and attempted second-degree murder for those who had survived. Because David had pleaded guilty, he was eligible for parole after 25 years, although obviously this was hotly contested by the prosecution. David Berkowitz was eventually imprisoned at Attica Correctional Facility, a supermax prison in upstate New York, after a series of stays and evaluations at various psychiatric wards. The case continued to captivate not only New York, but the rest of the country and beyond, its foothold in the media remain, remaining strong. Humorously, an attempt was made to keep attention off the apartment building at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers, where David lived, by simply changing its street number from 35 to 42, which I find kind of funny. <laughs> but I could see that working. So that there's no... Yeah, just so made it so that there's no 35. Mm. <laughs> but I'm sure for the people who lived at 35 Pine Street trying to cling on to their privacy and not be surrounded by journalists and nosy strangers it was worth trying anything mm. because the case was so overwhelmingly notorious people were falling over themselves to get a little insight into the son of Sam the name of course went down as one of the most famous serial killing cases in history helped by the more compelling aspects like the killer's frightening letters the specific victim pattern and perpetuated through references in popular culture from TV and film to music. Shortly after David's imprisonment, stories began to circulate that he was being offered deals for the rights to his story, deals that would see him essentially profit from his crimes. Though David never actually attempted to sell a book or close a movie deal, the very idea of this so enraged the public and state that New York State ended up establishing a law to stop a convicted person and their family from making any money from any venture relating to the story of their crime be it a book, film, or anything else. Since then, it seems about 41 states have enacted similar legislation. These laws tend to be known as Son of Sam laws. Oh. And I, I didn't know that he actually never tried to do anything, but it was it was just like a weird, sudden spike in public. Like, the very concept like everything that about might... it is so weird. <laughs> it's so weird that people... Well, like, I understand that there's... People want to be the one to have an exclusive deal and the rights to the story. But I do find that weird to start mm. with that people are like, we want the rights to tell this horrific story. Mm. And then that that gets somehow warped into him wanting to profit off it and people reacting to it. It's all like yeah. quite strange. Whilst in prison, David Berkowitz has finished his community college education with honours and is known to mentor fellow prisoners who are struggling. Since the late 80s, he has also become a born-again evangelical Christian. Although he's not allowed to access computers directly, he writes pieces for Christian websites. In these, he shares his remorse for his crimes and his thoughts on faith and redemption. Some of his religious writings have been published, though, of course, he hasn't received financial compensation for that. He now calls himself Son of Hope instead oh, of the Son God. of Sam. Which, it, for me, that's just more. It's just more drama. It's just more. But it annoys me the that the law stuff. is called the Son of Sam law and not it's the exactly David Berkowitz It's exactly playing law. into what he wants as well. Mm. I suppose it's up to everyone to decide for themselves whether they believe David has changed and is truly sorry, is genuinely committed to this new faith and all of that. But, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm... It's hard for it's hard for me to say. I think he's extremely narcissistic and probably that's incurable. <laughs> he's just yeah. Every 2 years our man comes up for a parole hearing as per the thing I said before his uh, guilty plea deal. Mm. David Berkowitz doesn't ask to be released though. He often refuses to attend the parole hearings at all, mm. asking that they be cancelled. However, by law, they have to hold the hearings, whether he wants a parole or not. So, you know, they hold them every two years and my man doesn't show up. <laughs> so That's an interesting detail. But I suppose he's kind of like, he's found a sense of stability in prison. Yeah. As weird as that sounds yeah. to say. 
David has made clear that although he says he has become a better person in prison and is no longer a danger to the public, he believes it is, it is right that he remain in prison until the end of his life. And I doubt anyone would disagree with him there. Mm. It doesn't make that what that is, is that doesn't make me think, oh, he's changed. That just makes me think he knows he's he's going to get denied. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So why bother? Oh, I see um, what you mean. I was thinking it's kind of like Charles Sobrage, mm. who had basically gotten away with being a free man somehow. And then for whatever reason, went back to the only country that still had a warrant out for his arrest. When he could have easily have not yeah, done that. It, yeah, it can be that kind of like need in a way for that structured life. Mm. What's your life going to be like on the outside as the son of Sam? Yeah. Impossible to live. David is now 68 years old and he's currently incarcerated at the Shawan, excuse me, Shawangunk Correctional Facility in Ulster County, New York. So case closed, maybe. Many people weren't convinced that one person could have committed all these murders and eventually David would sometimes lean into this. Um, he's dropped hints that there might be more to the case than the first thought. He's claimed to be part of a cult, a satanic cult, calling himself just a minor figure in the group and suggesting that other members would continue to commit more murders. However, broadly, he has stuck to the original confession throughout the years in which he is the lone perpetrator. Either way, he appears to like stirring the pot as we have covered that's the thing though that's like really making me lean more towards him just making up all this stuff because it's like you can tell when he's reacting and embellishing based on what people are interested in yeah and trying to like get some juicy details in that will like intrigue them mm. The NYPD officially dismissed the idea of any other perpetrators in the crimes, with lead detective Joseph Borelli saying, I don't buy it at all. After all, David had perfect recall of a each of the crimes, and after his arrest, it seems as though the Son of Sam murders did stop. An FBI profiler who interviewed David multiple times stated that he believed David incapable of group activity due to his loner personality and extreme introversion. I'd forgotten that as well. He's like a weird loner, so... But then there were the witnesses' conflicting descriptions of the shooter, as well as the mischaracterization of the car he drove. Oh. Um, so although it was always yellow, the Ford Galaxy is like an old-style kind of full-sized car. It's not a compact car, as we were saying earlier. Right. It's not like a family car. It's a small... <laughs> it's not... It's a... It's a quite full-sized car, as they call it in, a U in the US. Those who did think David had help included the victims. Um, some of the victims thought this. The prosecutor from Queens and some of the officers who had worked the case. Some believed the same gun was passed around and used by multiple people, as many as six. Hmm. Carl Denaro, one of the surviving victims, has said, There's no way that David Berkowitz did all the shootings. I personally think it was a cult. I don't know that for a fact, but I am convinced that... And no one can unconvince me that more than one person was involved. So, you know, he is as close to the case as you can be and believes that. So that's interesting. Years after David Berkowitz's conviction, Yonkers police quietly reopened an investigation into the Son of Sam case for themselves, also apparently unconvinced. It began in 1996 and remains open today. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's so implausible that one person could be behind all of these but there's some things that don't add up i did watch the netflix documentary sons of sam descent into darkness on i say on netflix of course i watched on netflix <laughs> i said it's a netflix documentary which i found interesting but definitely a bit sensational and it didn't really convince me that there was a cult behind the killings which mm. is the whole thing that it's saying that sons of sam is the cult and the killings are sacrifices it's one of those satanic panic fun conspiracy fun <laughs> fun conspiracies with that fear factor that makes it compelling mm -hmm. but i'm just not convinced personally but the the theory was like the life's work of this reporter called maury terry who also wrote a book about the case called The Ultimate Evil. He tried to convince police to reopen the case by showing them some interesting but ultimately circumstantial links, other cases around the US that he claimed were related, and also the theory that the real sons of Sam, from whom the name was inspired, were accomplices. David Berkowitz's neighbours, Michael and John Carr, whose father was named Sam. 
and who David, as mentioned, said was a Sam from the letter. So there's definitely something there that I find interesting because um, it's if you look at the sketches, oh, Michael Carr looks a little bit like the blonde one. Hmm. This is interesting. And so the and again that they were neighbours. I mean, it's not like <laughs> it's not nothing. You know, they yeah. were literally neighbours. So. <laughs> It's not out of the question that these guys could have been involved, at least. Mm. Um, some people think they were the real killers and that David Berkowitz is just some crazy guy that they pinned they pinned it on. But there's definitely something there, I think. I don't know that it's a cult. I don't know that it's a whole satanic thing. I just feel like these there is definitely something there because of the son of Sam yeah. and their dad's literally called Sam. You know, like what? Yeah, there's a whole thing there that's a bit... As I said before, NYPD detectives who work the case are very insistent that David was the sole perpetrator of the crimes and they've dismissed any notions of a cult as fantasy. And they would because they don't want to make a mistake. <laughs> this is, like, the thing is, though, it's like, am I convinced that this is... Like, I'm not 100% that this is a cult and there are multiple people behind these. But do I think mm. they should probably... Do I think, you know, we've seen... We've done many cases before where it's like easier to pin multiple crimes on a single person mm. than to actually think you still have investigating to do exactly there is an interview that maury terry lands with david berkowitz in the documentary which one could say might seem as though david is accepting maury's version of events somewhat but from what i remember it felt very desperate on maury's end and mm. i wasn't convinced that david was actually admitting that maury was right i felt like the questions were very leading mm. because maury was so desperate for confirmation and he got this interview it's probably felt like his big break yeah and his massive moment in cracking this and proving he's right and if David is affirming parts of Maury's theories, I believe it's only because it's fun for David, mm. sadly. He's locked up all day and he probably enjoys the idea that people are still trying to understand him. Yeah. So I imagine like most serial killers, he gets a thrill from reliving his crimes and toying with people who try and solve them, feeling superior. And he reverts to the old satanic cult stuff because I think he knows that's what Maury is chasing and he says it all, he says all the things that will get people going, Satan, child abuse images, animal killings. But I'm not sure that it's more than him trying to get people going. I'm not sure that there's any satanic, child abusing, animal killing stuff going on mm. behind the scenes all over America in the dark shadows. I just don't. I think the simplest explanation is usually the right one, and that is that David Berkowitz is a narcissist mm. <laughs> who absolutely loves the attention that, he's, that he gets, and that's that. On the other hand, I do think it's really possible that David Berkowitz wasn't the only Son of Sam shooter, mm. and I think, like I think I said, or you know, I think the connection with Sam Carr and his sons is very interesting, and I would as always, be interested to see what other people think about that. Did people think there was another shooter, a duo, possibly even a group, including the sons of Sam Carr? It's rare for serial killers to work together, but it's not unheard of. Yeah, but I do find that interesting, that this po there is this possibility of multiple people behind it. For me, with the sketches, yeah, there's not, an there's not enough, but I feel like with the sketches, with these two brothers, these shady brothers... And there's certainly more out there on this. Mm. So like, you know, on that part of it, if you want to look more into it, please go ahead and do so because there are a lot of little interesting tidbits, I think. But I would believe that they had something to do with it. Do I believe they were all in a big cult? Maybe not. But do I believe that they were all doing murders? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah. So that's it for the story of the son of Sam. It's hard to say that's it because like many others we cover, this one is, although this one's definitely one of the big ones, there is so much stuff to talk about mm. and go through. We simply cannot talk about every detail of this case. <laughs> it's like something, it simply couldn't happen. So if, if I miss something out, it's just not possible. <laughs> we could talk about it for six hours. <laughs> like that's how much there is on it, but no one would bother with that, least of all us. <laughs> And of course, this is the conclusion of the season, which we obviously hope you thoroughly enjoyed. 
Don't forget to subscribe and that we're on social media. Follow us on Twitter at About Murder, Instagram at Podcast About Murder, Facebook.com slash a podcast about murder with no E, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Search channels for a podcast about murder. Please do like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a fantastic rating, of course. I'm talking five stars. I'm not talking four stars. <laughs> I'm talking five. <laughs> Fucking the word hell. was fantastic. Yeah. Um, if you have any suggestions for the show, though, we're always open to those as well. You can even send us an email. It's a podcast about murder at outlook.com. Any final parting words? Um, the sad thing is I've written, as always, have a great weekend and see you next Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Which is strange because you know... You've always known you were closing the season. You just didn't want to accept it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. No, it's been fun doing, like, getting back to the podcast after quite a long break. I'll be intrigued to see how you, how the listeners, like, react to this season. And yeah, what you thought about this whole crazy case. Because it's one that sort of, there's just so much to unpack. Yeah, I, I actually have already got two cases in mind. For my next, mm. no, the ge- the gears are still going, man. <laughs> so hopefully it won't be as long of a break as it was, yeah, last time. So I mean, if it's it. as long a break as last time or longer, I guess we'll see you in a year, guys. Like <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I think it, it won't be that long. No, I don't think so. I hope not. Um, so that's it. That's all. Feels it's a really weird vibe because it's like it's always weird stopping for the last episode. I was thinking of maybe doing a couple of like special ones. Like I feel like I always say that at the end of every season, I go, "We'll do a couple in the middle, like random ones, special ones," and never do. <laughs> anyway, have a great weekend, and see you when we see you. Yeah, when you hear hear us, <laughs> one <laughs> you will emerge at some point when you least expect it.